everybody. Tim Riddle here from the Discover Blind Spots podcast, where we believe what you don't see can actually hurt you. Hey, how many of you have ever struggled with some type of a blind spot in your leadership? Now, you might say, well, how would I know if it's a blind spot? How would I see it? That's a fair question. But, you know, I believe unless we live under a rock, we probably have some idea of the areas where we struggle. You know, there's some things that we do well and other times we just fumble the ball. I mean, we don't mean to, but it happens. You read books, you go to seminars, watch videos, trying to soak up what you can in order to grow in your leadership, you know, become more mature, more grounded, more confident, maybe even show some empathy. Because, you know, I believe that if you lead with empathy and compassion, you won't have to use a lot of authority in your leadership. You know, the old saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Well, today on the podcast is someone that I admire greatly. And I admire them for their leadership. It's someone that I've followed for some time, and I believe he's an incredible example of leadership. Every time I get a chance to talk to him, be around him, I leave a better person. His name is Dr. Dan Boone, and he's the president of Trevecca Nazarene University in Nashville, Tennessee. My son Fletcher is currently a junior at Trevecca. Fletcher hadn't planned to attend Trevecca, you know, the senior year in college, I mean, in high school when he was doing the, the road trips and stuff. He was making his rounds, and a friend suggested that he visit Trevecca. Actually, his intention was just to take advantage of going to Nashville for a few days and check this visit off his list. But on his on that very first visit, he got a chance to meet Dr. Boone. And by the end of the day, Fletcher made the decision to spend the next four years of his life at Trevecca. I told you, he makes, a, makes you a better person. He makes a tremendous impression, Dr. Boone does. I don't know if I'm aware of another leader that has thousands of things to do every day in his job, wears lots of hats, his plate is, is full, I'm sure his calendar is maxed out, but he's also more present with people than anybody I know. See, now that's a, it's an incredible gift when somebody can do that. It's something that I actually aspire to be. I struggle with it at times. But it's something that I long to be, to be present in my conversations with others. Dr. Boone is also a renowned author and speaker. I'd encourage you to pick up one of his books. You'll love his writing. Last fall, I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Boone. He was kind and gracious, as I would have expected, but I was blown away, and I was reminded again, but I was blown ab away by the wisdom he shared. I don't know why I was surprised. It was just another example of his character that I love. I know that you're going you're gonna to love it too. You're going to connect with this. I'd encourage you to get your pen and paper out if you can. Or if you're in your car, maybe listen to it when you get back home. You know, kind of re-listen. Listen to it a couple of times. But here's my interview with Dr. Dan Boone. 
Well, Dr. Boone, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's a joy to do this, especially with you. Oh, you're kind. I really appreciate that. You know, we were reminiscing when I walked in here a little bit earlier about uh, we met. My son Fletcher was visiting schools, and I really hadn't planned to tell this story. I might tell it real quick. The very first visit, and I didn't meet you at that time, I don't believe, but he visited Treveca. And it was a school on the list. Mm -hmm. And as we were coming here, uh, I said, what do you think, Fletch? And he said, yeah, I'm just checking this one off. He said, I'm pretty sure I'm not coming to school here. (laughs) And so we arrived the night before and uh, had dinner. Uh, We stayed here locally. And I woke up the next morning with the flu. And I was supposed to walk around and be with him and... and, uh, do the visit and and he said dad i got it you know i'm i'm good and then about lunchtime he came back to the room and i think he'd had a chance to meet you yeah, I uh, through one of our mutual yeah, yeah one of our mutual friends connected that and and he walked back to the room and he said uh, i said how'd it go and he said dad guess where i'm going to go to school wow. and he he said he said i don't he said i really don't mean this in a bad way but i I'm kind of glad I, that you weren't there. Wow. <laughs> he, wow. said, he said, I could sort of go and just, you know, talk. And he said, I love the people. And he certainly loved his interaction with you. And, and, uh, and then we've had a chance to, to um, uh, see each other a few times. And I've just, uh, I've just admired your leadership, read several of your books. I uh, want to talk a little bit about that as sure. well. And, uh, I want to talk about, uh, eventually, I want to talk about your communication style because it, I just I just think uh, leaders in general could learn from that. And I'd love to pick your brain a little bit about how you do that because you're one of those people that if I see something on social media or wherever where you've written something, it's a little bit of the E.F. Hutton kind of thing. It's like I lean in and... Uh, and notice that, I mean, and you're not just saying that. I mean, that's a that's a you have a real gift for that, just from 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 a, an observer and a consumer mm-hmm. standpoint. And I, I uh, have tried to take notes, so I really appreciate you uh, appreciate you being here. Well, I appreciate that. And let let me before we get started too much, let me just congratulate you. You have raised one of the finest young men young mm-hmm. men that I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fletcher's a young man that stands on his own two feet from the first day that he walked in the office. I thought, this is a guy who knows what he wants to do with his life. He, he had a he had a path. You know, there's still plenty of room for God to direct him. Uh, but his own self-confidence, his sense of who he is, um, I mean, it was just beautiful. And then to watch his faith, I mean, just a deep, rich faith. Mm-hmm. And he loves you, too. He just mm-hmm. thinks the world of you. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, all of the coaching that you get a chance to do, be sure and tell people how to raise kids, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I always tell when people ask me about parenting advice, I always say I can, I can tell you what I've done up to this day. Yeah. But you never know about tomorrow. You don't. But I do. I'm a, I'm a little biased, but I do think he's a— He's a good good son. Th- this place, Treveca, mm-hmm. has certainly shaped yeah. his leadership, and and it was the right place yeah. for him. So we're yeah. excited about that. So tell me, um, tell me about. Uh, I'm always intrigued by leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know in my life this has been the case, and so I suspect it's it's been yours. You're at a place in time today, but there have been several stops along the journey 
that has led you to today. And, and those who are in your inner circle probably know maybe a lot of those stops and so forth that influenced you or shaped you. Can you kind of go back in history a little bit and and talk about that story? Sure. The, uh, uh, you know, I knew when I was around 12 years old that, that God wanted me to be a pastor. Uh, It was a very distinct call on my life. And I think one of the things, uh, one of the gifts that happened early in my life that it took me a few decades to realize what had happened was uh, an, an older pastor took an interest in me. He was kind of a supply pastor, and he would fill in at churches here, there, and yonder. So, I mean, I'm 13 years old, and he's he's calling me. He's a good friend of our family, and he's saying, hey, go with me. I'm preaching up at such and such a church this, this weekend. And so I'd go with him, and all the way back, we'd talk about his sermons. Uh, when I turned 14, he said, I'll preach on Sunday morning. You preach on Sunday night. Wow. And then all the way back, we'd talk about my sermons. And then when I turned 15, he said, I'm still going to drive, but you're going to do all the preaching. Wow. Well, what I, what I didn't realize in that moment was this, was this was a man, a seasoned pastor, who saw the opportunity to pour his life into a young man. And so he did. And as a result of that, when I was a junior in high school, there was a church about 30 miles from my hometown that, that didn't have a pastor, couldn't find a pastor. And so he went on my behalf to the superintendent in charge of that congregation and, and landed me a job. So, right. you know, I'm a junior in high school pastoring a church. Wow. And it was this, uh, it was this sense of, um, you know, being, being young and able to understand the responsibilities that are on leaders. So, it's, you know, two years later when I, uh, when I came here to Trevecca to college, there was a there was a sense in which I already knew where everything fit. I'd had the kind of experiences so that my education actually filled in the experiences and, and helped me understand uh, why this is necessary. You know, a lot of a lot of students would complain about the gen ed classes they had to take, uh, and I fully understood why it was important to know those kinds of things because sure. I'd been in a setting that needed it so so that was a that was a key early experience to have a mentor who believes in you who hears what it is you think your life might be about and kind of puts you in the middle of that so you can get your feet wet now i wasn't great uh you know the truth is i probably ought to go back and apologize to those people for the (laughs) untrained sermons i preached and all that stuff but it was it, it was the early shaping that began to happen uh, then I would say beyond that, I've had a handful of theological mentors across my life that I've called at key decisions, key issues in my life, and it has been a consistent group of people that when I would call, they already knew who I was, so they knew me deeply enough that they could understand the questions I was asking them in the context of life. Um, you know, we had great pastorates, and I, I think I learned as much from those churches as they ever learned from me. Uh, but pastorates in North Carolina, and then one in Tennessee, and one in Illinois, uh, before being called to come back here uh, as university president. So there's a uh, there's a, a a joy. Each of those three pastorates required different leadership. Mm. So one of the things I learned in those is that sometimes the institution itself shapes the need for a particular style of leadership that Mm. would be in 
in that congregation. And our last uh, congregation in Illinois, I think one of the pivotal moments, uh, it was a 14-year pastorate, and I was about halfway through it. And around the seven-year uh, time, I just remembered thinking one day, okay, I can't keep doing what I did the first seven years if I'm going to stay another seven or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, something needs to change. And I really did a deep dive. It was in that moment that I actually decided to go back and do a, a doctoral program in preaching. And it gave me the opportunity to rethink my own leadership style. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I think I would say I've recognized key moments in my life that I needed to deepen as a leader, broaden my skill set, and the institution, uh, I had actually led it into uh, proficiency regarding what I already knew, Mm -hmm. but I had to lead at the next level, which meant I had to become more proficient than I'd been in the past to be able to give leadership beyond where where we were at that point. Right, absolutely. You know, when I talk to leaders, a lot of times, and particularly leaders in transition or leaders mm-hmm. that are considering transition, yeah. probably the question I get most often is, how do you know? Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and so, you know, how do you know it's a, it's a, it's a Holy Spirit prompting or how yeah. do you know it's not last night's pizza? Yeah. Uh, so can you talk to that? I mean, when you went through some of those changes and those decisions, yeah. kind of ha- what, what process uh, I did you experience? The, um, I think a lot of times leaders leave because they are not they don't have enough self-knowledge to know that what's happened is they've come to the limit of who they are and they're unwilling to grow beyond where they are in that given moment. Mm. And and when you always leave in that moment what happens is you go looking for a place that your old skill set can be replicated again. That's not a bad thing. There's nothing evil with that mm-hmm. in any way. But I, but I really believe that God continues to use every opportunity to shape a leader. So when I come up to an obstacle that that almost makes me start thinking, is it time for me to leave? I've always stopped and asked the question, is it really that I need to leave or is it actually that I need to grow? Oh, wow. And, yeah. and by taking that particular stance, uh, I've taken myself back to school several times. Mm. Uh, and with the kind of job uh, jobs that I've had, the summertime could easily be a time that I would decide, okay, I'm just going to dig in on this particular issue and move forward. Now, at other times, what I'd recognize was I've probably taken this institution, this church, to the level that I was called to take it to, and it's time for me to be somewhere else for their sake as much as for my own. Uh, in those times, I've always thought uh, my my theology of God's will is a little bit homespun, mm-hmm. but I think God has three ways to lead us. Uh, one is just through open and closed doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I wish God always did that because, <laughs> you know, Lord, just open it and I'll walk through it. The uh, But the next level up, I think, is what I call ping pong balls in a bucket of water. Mm. You just keep pushing all of them down to the bottom of the bucket and see which one keeps floating back to the top wow. again. Wow. Where you look at the options that you have with your life. And what is it that after a season of prayer, uh, two, three months, 
What is it after that season of prayer and journaling and reflection? What keeps popping back up to the top consistently on good days, bad days, when you're dreaming, when you're depressed, when you're, you know, whatever happens. And then the third, the third way that I think God sometimes leads, and I think this is the highest maturity level, is when God says to us, you are my child, um, you have the mind of Christ, as Paul wrote about, um, you desire the kingdom in its rich fullness, I'm going to trust you to go and do what I've called you to do, and I'm going to bless where you would go. Mm. And, and I think there's that divine freedom. And I've had all three of those different kind of experiences where the Lord just at times, it was kind of like, this is where you're going. And the doors were opened and, uh, and they were closed in every other direction. And then other times, a season of thinking. Um, and, and then uh, here in the last couple of moves of my life, it's really been, uh, if you want to go do that, I'll bless you. That's mm -hmm. my work. And, uh, you know, and I trust you with it. And if this brings you joy and delight, I, I just think God does want to give us the desires of our heart. Yeah. And when our hearts are in line with the heart of God and our mind has so been formed in likeness to Jesus, I think there's a sense that we can, because we know ourselves, we can trust ourselves more. Now, I still, even in those moments, would call a couple of friends and say, does this sound like God to you? <laughs> or does this sound like Dan trying to talk himself into something? Exactly. So, so yeah. I, I still would have a few checkpoints. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, in my uh, new business that is, is less than just a few months old now, really when I began having some stirrings inside yeah. of me at my age, uh, and people were scratching their heads saying, really, you want to you yeah. start this? Uh, two things happened. Uh, one is, it's interesting, you mentioned the open door and closed door. Yeah. Uh, for two years, I've been praying that prayer, and uh, and I felt like that was a faithful prayer to say, you know, hey, God, uh, you know, I'm, I'm at a stage in my leadership that I can probably pry open some doors. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But let, let's don't do that. Yeah. You know, let, you just keep the door shut that I don't need to walk through. And if a door's open, here's what I'll do. I'll have the courage to walk through it. And the other thing that I noticed was that if I see a door open, it doesn't mean that it's the door of all doors. Right. It might mean right. that it's just the door for today yeah. that leads to another. Yeah. And so that's really what... Uh, kind of what I've been trying to do and uh, and really asking God even now uh, as I begin to you know work with different clients and so forth it's just sort of say hey God you open the doors yeah you know you control the rhythm and so forth and then you know m maybe the the last piece somebody asked me yesterday they said how did you how did you know and I said for this particular time when I began to talk to my wife Stacy who's a little bit of my but she's she's part of the whole she's connected to the holy spirit I yeah believe. i understand that <laughs> and i said i was standing in the kitchen and i remember uh times saying to her uh wow this this might be interesting to pursue but i was afraid to pursue it and then i remember the day that i said to her i said i'm I don't know that I can go to my grave and not at least try this. Yeah. So I moved from being afraid to do it yeah. to being afraid not to do yeah. it. Yeah. And um, and I appreciate what you said about you know God trusting and blessing 
because uh, that's where I'm hanging my hat right now. So that's encouragement to me. Thank you for those words. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thrilled for you to find that place. I do think that the work of God is something that connects to the giftedness that is within us. And that as we, one of the great gifts God gives to us is self-knowledge. Mm -hmm. We know ourselves in ways that we know how we fit in that particular mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. So I've always wanted to get myself in a culture long enough to say, could I see myself here? Mm -hmm. does, does the way God has wired me fit this particular culture and this work? doesn't mean that the work that we're called to is not going to be really, really hard sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, because I, th I think God does put his children in the middle of mm -hmm. tough situations. Mm -hmm. um, but you can be in the middle of a tough situation and still be deeply affirmed that this is the work I'm supposed to be doing, mm -hmm. uh, even though it can be hard at times. Yeah, absolutely. So today, as yeah. the uh, president of Trevecca, yeah. uh, what does the day in the life uh, <laughs> look like? <laughs> there are no two days that are alike. It, sure. It's it's the craziest thing in the world. Uh, the uh, the number of times I would switch hats in a given day are, are just it, sometimes it's every five minutes. Mm. But there, the constituencies that are connected to a university are dramatically different, and their agendas are dramatically different. So there is the uh, constituency of students that you're with. They're, you know, they're asking key questions about their life and their calling. Uh, they're trying to figure out relationships, their, uh, their ethical sense, their ethical self is coming into form. They're trying to decide what part of my parents am I still? What part of my family upbringing do I think I might want to rethink. Mm. Uh, so they're looking, they're looking at all that. So that particular constituency is a very inquisitive and conversational type constituency. Then, you know, you, you get with a group of, of professors and faculty, and these are people who know the practices of critical thinking. Mm. And they will, <laughs> they will practice that on a president uh, from time mm, to time. Mm, sure. So they are the people who are analyzing about everything a university does, and they have questions about strategies and priorities and uh, buildings and budgets and all kind of stuff like that. So that's a whole different mindset. Then you then you have an alumni that are out there. Um, and the alumni have memories of the school, hopes for the school. Uh, they think about contributions to the school. So you, you've got that sense of the past to steward with that group. We're in the middle of a thriving city, and so I'm with city leaders all the time that are interested in what we're doing with property and how we're providing uh, uh, workers for the businesses that are looking at Nashville or coming to Nashville, uh, the imprint that we're making on the economy of the city, uh, uh, you know, the question of uh, of our willingness to participate in political issues. So you you know you've got that. Then there's the constituency that looks at universities as thinkers in the world. So I quite often, a lot of the blogs you've read that I've written mm -hmm. are about issues like DACA students. I mean, that's a, that's mm -hmm. a major issue. How would a Christian university think about a DACA student and, and their whole, the sense of their family? What does it mean to love that family as a neighbor? And what does it mean to, uh, to desire there to be secure borders in our country 
while at the same time loving this next-door neighbor in a way that helps him get to a college mm-hmm. education. Sure. Uh, so colleges are places that are, you know, you're thinking about that. The business world is out there. They're wanting to know what kind of training we're giving for the graduates that are coming through. Uh, you've got the federal government that has its stake in what we do, the state government. There are the accrediting bodies that accredit all of our programs that we have. Uh, so on any given day, I'm changing hats sure. just all day long. And um, what I know, though, is that wherever I go, whatever I'm doing, I am the walking brand of what the word Trevecca means. Mm-hmm. And I have to bear that carefully. I even say to our athletes a lot of times, we give you a uniform that has the name of the school on it. You ride in a bus that has the name of the school on it. Everything you do is the reputation of this school. Mm. We have entrusted a precious name to you, and we want you to bear it with great dignity and respect. That's the way I feel about God. Mm. God has entrusted the name of Christ, Christian. He has entrusted that to me, and I want my life, wherever I go, to be a reflection of the true and the living God in any way. So the primary role that I have every day as a president is that I would live my life in a way that would bring honor to Jesus Christ. And by doing that, I think our university, uh, its brand as a Christian university in the heart of Nashville, that flows through. You know, when you were describing uh, all of those different people groups that bid for your time and the different hats, uh, one of the things that I've noticed uh, in our interaction and, um, and and about your leadership mm-hmm. that I aspire to be, but I'm still a work in progress. How do you remain so present with people? You know, one one of the things that I've noticed when I've sat with you, I know you like today. I know you have a a very busy schedule. I know that you can't just drop what you're doing, but every time that I've had a conversation with you, it was if I was, it was as if your schedule was clear and you were totally, uh, is it, I mean, how do you, how do you do that? Yeah, I think I'm able to do that with most everyone I meet with. The person I'm poorest uh, in that practice would be my wife. Mm. Because when I'm with Denise, for some reason, I often will let that be time that I'm thinking about all the other stuff that I'm doing. And so she she is such a gift. She says to me, your mind's busy. Tell me what you're thinking about. And so Mm. she she draws me out of it. But I really think it's a practice across the years. Um, Pastoral work is a great trainer in knowing how to be present with people Mm. because that 20 minutes after a sermon on a Sunday morning you're going to have 10 or 15 conversations with people that are on the way out of the church, but you're going to hear in a 90-second snippet somebody trying to tell you, my life is not going well, or what I heard this morning I really need to do something about. And the ability to hone in on what you heard and then know that in the coming week I need to take some kind of follow-up action on that. That was a great practice trainer for me and then the counseling that I would do or the pastoral visits in the hospital that I would do um, you know I, when I'd go to the hospital and visit people uh, I, I always thought 
I don't have to bring something to them. What I have to do is let them tell me where they are and what they need. And then I'll see if I have that to give to them in that moment. So the leaders, we have this, we have this horrible thought that we're carrying all this expertise around and we're just going to back our dump truck up to people and dump it in their lap. The, the truth is the best leaders that are out there are people who move into a situation with enough openness to discern what is going on. And then they look in their arsenal of skill to see if there's something they have that can offer to that. So I think I learned that early in ministry, and I've just, uh, I've just tried to practice it uh, all the way moving through. People are my business. Mm. I mean, it, buildings and bricks and mortar and budgets and all that stuff, I have to do that work. But it is only in service to people. So if, if I fail with people, I, I fail at my job. Yeah, you make it sound simple, but uh, we we all know that that there's more to that, uh, and says a lot about you and your character. You know, you talk about. I mean, that is a pastoral heart, but I think there are a lot of pastors, if they were very transparent, <laughs> would say they may not have that side of their yeah. heart uh, at times. That that that's hard to do. So one of the things also that I've admired about you is your writings uh, yeah. and, 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 you know, certainly mentioned, you know, some of the blog posts or, or social media stuff, but also your books. And I did a, a little research uh, earlier uh, looking at how many books that you've written, but I don't know that I was able to grab all of them. So do you know, <laughs> do you know how many I, it is? I, it's around 20. Okay. I, I, I really don't know. I'd have to go back and count them all too. So yeah. Talk about, uh, just talk about in general, was that something that you knew that you felt like, hey, I think I'm a writer? How, wh- where did that begin? And, and then could you talk about maybe the process of writing for you? Yeah, the, you know, the practice of preaching for me introduced me to writing. Mm. I, I wrote full manuscripts on sermons for, you know, 25, 30 years or so. So, so writing was a weekly habit for me. And I, and a, a part of learning to preach well, I learned to write about things that I would see. Uh, at the end of a lot of days, I would go home and I, I would have seen two or three things happen that day and I'd just jot a sentence about that in a journal. And then in free times, I would go back and just reflect on that. So I, I've got a hundred journals of, mm. uh, of lifetime stories and things that I've seen. I, I learned to be observant of life and to write and reflect on that. And I think that's, and I did that to be a good preacher. Mm. Then as I transitioned from being a pastor to being a college president, that weekly discipline of writing a sermon disappeared because I don't, I don't have to write a sermon every week anymore as a, a college president. And immediately what happened is a lot of what I had done in, in series work. One of my first books was on the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. for instance. And, you know, I had done Revelation two or three times across years of, mm-hmm. of preaching. And I thought, yeah, it'd be fun to get that in print. So you pull all those out and you, uh, you begin to think about writing for reading versus writing for speaking. And those are different. There's a, there's a skill set transition that happens there. Uh, but I did that one, and then I did another one and another one, and I thought, well, this is good. Then I began to, uh, 
Then I began to watch a few years ago. I saw a world that was uh, divisive and mean-spirited and the whole social media attack world. And, you know, I saw all that and it troubled me deeply. And I started thinking about that. And and out of journaling and praying about that for a year or so, uh, came, came the book A Charitable Discourse, mm-hmm. talking about the things that divide us. Sure. Because I'd watched Christians divided over... Uh, issues of, of sexual ethics and politics and science and uh, the emerging church and women preachers and, you know, just I, a scad of issues. And I had been blogging on those issues, trying to lead a university community to deal with those issues. And before I knew it, I, I had a book that came together around that. So I'm a lot of my writing comes out of what I'm really working on in the world that is hard. Right. And as I journal and think and read other books about it, I usually get to a tipping point where I begin to realize, I, I think I know what I'd say about this. And then I can write in a pretty fast gust. I can get a book done in about 30 to 60 days. Wow, really? Once I get to that point, because <clears throat> uh, I'm pulling, I'm organizing, I'm rethinking, I'm working on flow of it. Uh, but I, I've enjoyed writing. Yeah. What What does that look like in your thirty to sixty days? Are you yeah. Are you one of those uh, uh, writers that it's it's I need to I can write eight hours in a day and or I you know I just need a, a couple hours at a time or I, I need to go away. I can yeah. incorporate it with everything else. What What does that rhythm look like for you? Uh, it, it's probably like a uh, like a baseball player that gets on a hot streak and he yeah. knows that you know the ball looks like it's three feet three feet wide and he's and he's hitting it out of the park every time he gets up. When I get in that mode, I will grab every spare minute wow. I can have. I'll get up early. I'll stay up late. Uh, you know, there's times that I've written all night long and just wow. into the next morning. When, when I'm in a flow where those kinds of things are coming together, and I'll even try to claim two or three days in a row or something to get big blocks of material finished. Uh, so I can, you know, I can get on a roll and, and get a book out there, then uh, I'll work with the publisher and we'll go back and tweak it and some things like that, uh, which is boring to me, to be honest with you. And, you know, you know this because you're in the last stage of getting that done. I did say to my wife one time, I said, boy, writing this book is like birthing a baby. And she said, you have no clue what birthing a baby is like. And I said, you know, you're right. You're right. I said, it's painful, but probably nowhere close to that. And what I'm going to end up with isn't near as good as a baby. So. That's funny. Um, you know, I'm glad you shared that about your writing process, because one of the things from a consumer of what you've written is that one of the things that I love, I love your style of writing. It's very yeah. engaging. And I love that. I used your Revelation book for yeah. uh, uh, teaching that, that uh, actually Joanne and I did about a year or so uh, ago. Loved it. But I also noticed that even when you're writing, if it's if it's a book or, or it's a blog post or even issues that are not easy issues, yeah. what you write comes off as being very clear. It's never... You finish reading it, and it's like, well, I wonder where he stands. It's very clear, but it's <laughs> yeah. also written in a way that 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 has compassion, yeah. but confidence. Yeah. Can can you can you respond to that? I, I can because I think it's one of the uh, 
the charitable discourse book uh, really came out of a heart that believes that we can be that. I think I think a lot of times in difficult issues, the way Christians sort of skate around it is mm-hmm. they're not clear. Mm-hmm. They they don't have a way to say this is a conclusion that I've come to, or after careful thinking, this is this is what I think this particular biblical text means. I, I think clarity is needed if there is to be unity. Mm. Now, that kind of clarity, though, it can't, it can't invalidate space for other opinions. Mm-hmm. So I've always, I've always had in my mind, how do I make a point as clear as I possibly can without saying that if you disagree with me, you're wrong, or there's no room for any other work, or this is the final word on it? I've always wanted to to leave space so that this could be the beginning of mm. a conversation instead of the ending of a conversation. Great point. And too much writing sounds like the fist has come down or the gavel has come down at the end of it, and that's all there is to say about it. And I've always tried to write in a way that invites a conversation instead of ends a conversation. Yeah. And there's a... Uh, I think preaching helped me know that. If I, I wanted, I wanted to preach sermons in a way that at the end of it, uh, business people wanted to sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk further about that. So there is a skill about not having a judgmental spirit of finality mm-hmm. and pu- having put people in a category. You either agree with me or you don't. Um, uh, I don't think that works well. Mm-hmm. I, I think one one of the ways that I would say it, I've taught homiletics a lot in my life, and uh, I love teaching homiletics. Mm-hmm. But I've always said there's front door and back door preachers. Mm-hmm. The front door preacher walks up to your front door, dressed in a three-piece suit, uh, shoes shine, knocks on the door. The speech that's made to you at the front door is precise it is exact it is spectacular and they have a response to anything you have and at the end of their presentation you want to buy their product Mm. those are the great orators the the people who have so crafted every word every sentence in every way then there are backdoor preachers backdoor preachers kind of come around and they engage you in a conversation. And before long, you've been invited inside and you're sitting at the kitchen table drinking a, gl- a glass of cold tea with them and, and you're talking about one another's life and you're sharing wisdom with one another. And when that's over, there, you, you have left a relationship in place instead of a product. I've never considered myself a great orator in any way. I've always been one of those backdoor kind of guys that wanted to engage a person in a real conversation about something substantial and let that conversation occur in such a way that after the conversation is over, a relationship exists. Because mm. the, goal, the goal is to know one another, not to win on content points, mm. but to truly get to know someone. Uh, so to have clarity and at the same time the goal of this to be a trusting relationship um, that just sort of that's driven my writing yeah well the it, it does seem that it's a little bit of a lost art to be able to listen more today yeah. <laughs> than to communicate yeah. or at least listen first 
Yeah. Um, and sometimes we want to communicate first and then <laughs> see what, <laughs> see, let the, the uh, you know, pieces fall where they may. The name of this podcast is Discover Blind Spots. Yeah. And my co-author, Phil Anderson, and I have defined in our book a blind spot. Actually, our editor said, you guys, you got to figure out how to define this. And we, we actually had a, a an interesting conversation about that, really talking about, so is a blind spot, all blind spots are sins. Mm-hmm. And uh, we pushed back and said, I don't think so. Uh, I think a lot are. Yeah. A lot are. But there are some that are blind spots that are things that, that maybe we're just not aware of in our leadership gifts yet. Maybe God hasn't revealed it yet. Maybe he hasn't revealed it through somebody else yet. And I'm not sure I can feel like I'm uh, being sinful there unless I'm yeah. unless I'm aware of it and I'm not following through and yeah. utilizing that gift. But yeah. sometimes God chooses to reveal certain gifts at certain points of our life. So with that in mind, we, we sort of defined a blind spot as anything that keeps you or prevents you from being all that God has wired you up to be. Yeah. You know, what, whatever that is. So in your leadership uh, over the years, are there, are there certain, you know, are there a couple, I won't ask you to yeah. bare your soul here too much, <laughs> but are there, is there a blind spot or two that you might share and, and how that was revealed to you and how you work through it. Yeah. I, a part of me would say, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For all of us. I the, uh, yeah. Two or three come to my mind immediately. Uh, one of them is that as a, as a teenager in high school, I had the capacity in conversations. I think I was pretty quick on my feet. And so I had the ability to maintain some social status by cutting someone down Mm. or Mm. humiliating them in Mm. some way or making a joke. And for me, it was just, it was a, it was a sport of power of, of a sense. And, and I didn't see this about me and I didn't see it as a practice that was painful in the lives of other people until a dear friend of mine one time, she was the blunt end of something that I said. And as I knew my heart, there was no ill intent, Mm. but I saw the pain in her. And she pulled me aside later and she said, you have no clue how deeply it hurts people when you do this, do you? Mm. And I said, no, I don't. Tell tell me about it. And, and, And this friend helped me see a way in which I think I used a quick wit to to benefit myself, but it was harmful to other people. And I'm so grateful that a friend helped me see that piece because it was a there it was a moral turning in my life. For me to have continued at that point to have done that with knowledge of it would have been sin. Uh, because mm-hmm. it you know it came to me as an understanding. Sure. Uh, another one uh, I would say my IQ is strong, but my EQ is not as strong. But my wife has exceptional emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, we can both go to the same meal and sit with one person and hear the same conversation. And on the way home, she picked up three times more than what I did. And she would say, you, did, you do know that person's having trouble in their marriage or they're having trouble with finances or did you notice that uh, they're not physically well? She, she was able to just 
read body language. Mm. And over years, I've, I've just watched her be right about 99% of the time. Wow. So, uh, so where I, uh, th- th- this helps me most in hiring practices now. Mm. And if I can get a potential employee that I'm looking at hiring uh, or an applicant for a job that I'm hiring, if I can get them to a meal with Denise, I've learned that I have a blind spot. While I might know all the right questions and the content I'm looking for and I can delve into their resume, I can, the fact side of whether they can do this job, I can figure that one out. Mm-hmm. But do they fit in the culture? Are they mm-hmm. a healthy person? Is there, do they have good relational capacity? She sees that better than I do. Mm. And for me to be aware that I always need someone else that has that skill in the room in a job interview process or trying to uh, handle something that's sensitive, uh, I've been grateful to just recognize from living with a spouse that sees things that I miss, Mm. that that I've got blind spots Mm. in that particular place. Uh, one other one I would mention, the I think one of my early blind spots was that I like to be liked. Mm, uh, sure. I, I think a lot of people who are the profile of pastors, we enjoy this work because it puts us in places where people appreciate us. Mm. And they, you know, we go into grieving situations and situations that need counsel and we go into all kinds of situations where we're the hero. Mm-hmm. I mean, we bring care and we don't charge anything mm-hmm. for it. And we, you know, we've come and helped these people. And and you you can feed your soul off of that so much that you almost become dependent on being liked because of what you've done. So, you know, I, I have 20, 25 years of, of, of pastoring in that experience that happens. And then I come to a college presidency. And now for the first time in my life, I actually have to go ask people for something. Mm. I'm the needy one. Mm-hmm. I'm the one that needs sure. someone else to, to be a donor or a, uh, or, or a helper of the university in some way that I can't provide. And I suddenly realized in the context of that, something's wrong here. And I became very aware in that moment that I so much like to be in the position of power where I'm the one doing the giving or the helping or the advising. Uh, But when you put me in a position where I'm the one who is the needy one, Mm -hmm. I found myself very uncomfortable. Mm. And what I realized is this is a blind spot. It's a place within my life that the work I had done for so long rarely put me in situations where I needed somebody else to come help me. Wow. And and those kind of experiences across time, I think can dig a groove in your brain. And unless you get a different experience that somehow discomforts you, you don't even think about that groove anymore. You just get in it and ride it to the day you die. So I'm grateful that God uh, and God's wisdom just put me in a in a setting where I needed to become aware of something that I no longer was seeing Mm. that I think was keeping me from becoming uh, the best servant of God that I could possibly be. And I've learned to be extremely humble again Mm. (laughs) in in the context of being a university president because 
I need students. If they're not here, I don't have a job. I need donors. If they're not contributing, we don't have the, the ability to fund student aid or build the facilities we need. Um, I need a group of employees to actually own and accomplish the mission. Uh, and, you know, as a leader of a church, the truth is a hardworking pastor can usually lead a church to growth. You, you might need a few staff people, but a smaller church, you can make it do good. And even the larger congregations I've pastored, 10 or 12 people coming alongside, we could get that thing there. But now in a university that, that hires three to 400 people, I don't have a prayer of getting this work done. I am as needy as anybody around. And that has shown me something about myself that I wasn't aware of. Wow, wow. Thank you for being so transparent. So maybe in our, uh, in our uh, kind of our going down our last piece here, our last question, if as you are influencing and interacting, and I know you're very hands-on with students here. I mean, I know yeah. my son Fletcher, he, you know, he'll say, I saw Dr. Boone the other day yeah. and he just invited me in and you know, invited me over to his table for lunch or whatever. And so I know that you're very present with, with these kids. So as they think about, uh, particularly those you know juniors and seniors, and yeah. they're getting ready to go out into the to the real world, or maybe they're going to continue their education for whatever reason, but yeah. eventually they're going to move out into the real world. Uh, what would you what what potential blind spots if you had to sum it up into one or two? What would you tell them? Hey, here's some things you ought to you need to look out for because if you're not careful, you may not see this coming. Yeah, I. I think the the generation in college right now, the culture has embedded some glaring blind spots in them. The, the way in which a human being in biblical times identified themselves was who they belonged to. So, you know, uh, Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. And, you know, you, you explained who you are by telling people the, the tribe you belong to, the people that you belong to. And I think that is what Christian identity is about. It's about the Christ that you belong to and the people of Christ that form and shape you. And the culture that we live in says the way you define yourself is how you're different from everyone, how you stand apart from everyone. So I think one of the blind spots in college students is they believe they have to go out and distinguish themselves as different from everybody, which puts them in the middle of the world almost as a vulnerable object having to convince everyone that they run into that I'm good, I'm smart, I'm, yeah, you know, I'm in charge, I'm whatever it is. And I think that's too heavy of a burden to bear. So they go into the world trying to be somebody instead of going into the world knowing who they are. Mm -hmm. It's a whole lot easier for me to live out my identity in the world than it is to go try to create my identity in the world. Mm -hmm. And for me, Christianity gives us our identity. So I think it's a generation that has a blind spot at the point of where their identity is rooted. Mm -hmm. They're trying to find it by winning the game in the world instead of finding it by knowing who they are in Christ and then giving that away as a gift to the world. So, you know, I see that as a, just a major, major blind spot that, that this generation would have. Another, another one that I'm watching is the, um, is the level of, of anxiety that's there. 
it's a generation that is overconnected. They have uh, the cell phone has primarily trained them to be 30-second attention span human beings, and their ability to play to pay long and deep attention to a person or an issue or a particular skill or a problem. It, they are quickly frustrated when issues are not immediately solvable. Mm-hmm. And so that, uh, that sense of anxiety in an over-connected, uh, over-teched generation is, is something that I'm trying to help them with. I, pre- I preached a, uh, a sermon in chapel not long ago, and I said, most of you are experiencing life coming at you like... Uh, telephone poles on a long straight highway where, where you're driving 80 miles an hour and it's coming at you so fast you can't pay attention to any single pole you pass it's just on to the next on to the next on to the next and I said the gift of Sabbath is the gift I mean the word just simply means stop mm-hmm. cease desist quit and I said you have no gear in you as a generation to do that and because of that, your blind spot tells you that I have to go as fast as the world is going if I'm going to keep up and be successful. What I'm telling you is if you will learn in that fast-paced world to slow down, you will be able to bring wisdom to it and peace to it and hope to it in a way that people who are on a treadmill going 80 miles an hour will never be able to do. So I'm, I'm trying to help a generation that is rooted in their identity and that has the ability to, to think carefully about life and to examine the life they're giving and ask the hard questions and sit long enough in conversations to get deeper than, um, than a tweet. Because I think the world needs those kind of deep people in its future. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Boone, thank you. Uh, for your time. This has been a huge blessing for oh, me. That's been if, fun. If not for anybody else, it's been, <laughs> it's been for me, but I know it's going to be for a lot of people. And I just, I can't tell you, as I, as I said at the beginning, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you and how much I value your leadership and the influence that you've been uh, really with me and my family and my son and, and the, um, just, just how that uh, relationship began his very first day on campus here and how much he thinks of you as well. And I know that uh, uh, you're pouring into a lot of lives and doing some great good. It's a joy to do it. And people like you and your family make me want to believe in cloning. (laughs) (laughs) You're very kind, but I appreciate your time today. And uh, it was just great to be with you. Thanks so much. I told you, didn't I? He's really good. What a phenomenal leader that is doing great things in this world. I would encourage you to check out Trebekah in the heart of Nashville, Tennessee. Go to the website, check it out, read some of Dr. Boone's writings, um, buy one of his books. He's, he's a phenomenal writer. I've read several. I assure you, you will not be disappointed. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. And you know, if you get a chance, head over to discoverblindspots.com, discoverblindspots.com, and see how I might be able to help you uncover a few blind spots in your organization. And remember, make sure you have someone in your life 
that can help you see the things you might struggle to see.